Okay, welcome to EM Talkscast. Uh, very excited today to have my two guests, uh, Dr. Ernie Lieber and Dr. Ed Ramaska. Ernie is our current program director here at uh, Drexel University College of Medicine, Emergency Medicine Residency, and Ed is the former program director. Uh, so we have a program director rich environment. <laughs> I guess I should be included as the right, former, right. former yes. program director. Yes, yes, you should include yourself. <laughs> My former program director, I could. Ask. That's true. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it, on some weird level, it's all my fault. Uh, <laughs> There's some circle of life thing going on. There <laughs> is. Yeah. For better, or for worse. For better, or for worse. And today we're doing. A, we're going to um, uh, have a little fun and flip the classroom for Journal Club. Uh, so we're putting together this podcast. And if you are listening to this podcast um, and coming to the Journal Club, you'll be all the wiser for having heard the inside uh, discussion and uh, and uh, sort of insights of this uh, austere group. Uh, Ed, why don't you lead it off with the uh, first article that we're going to review? All right. So the first article was entitled, Effect of a Single Dose of Oral Opioid and Non-Opioid Analgesics on Acute Extremity Pain in the Emergency Department, Randomized Clinical Trial. Um, this just came out recently in JAMA, was uh, November of 2017. It was by Chang and his associates. It was done at um, Albert Einstein at uh, Montefiore in the Bronx. And they were basically looking to see what kind of pain reduction they could get at two hours with four different um, oral combination analgesics. So methods. Everybody loves the methods. We right? love methods, Ed. Right. So it's a randomized <laughs> double-blind trial. They looked at adults, so 21 to 64 years old. Okay. They conducted it over like 13 months, and they have two different hospitals they ran this in. It was an urban teaching hospital in the West Bronx and a community hospital in the East Bronx. Mm -hmm. And they basically took people who had acute extremity pain, so pain less than seven days in an extremity, so shoulders to fingertips or hips to toes. Something you had to x-ray. And something that had to be x-rayed, right. right? They figured that was a marker for severe pain sure. if they were going to mm -hmm. x-ray it. They had a bunch of exclusions, you know, your typical, if you're allergic to something, you got a chronic condition, and if you use some of the drugs before and stuff like that. So they basically compared Tylenol number 3, which is codeine 30 and acetaminophen, Vicodin, which right. is hydrocodone and acetaminophen, Percocet, which is oxycodone and acetaminophen, or 400 of ibuprofen and 1,000 of acetaminophen. And they used your typical 11-point pain scale, 0 to 10. And um, they basically, you know, they, they, they did a power analysis before mm -hmm. time, and they said, okay, we need 100 patients, and they actually got that. So the results. They analyzed 411 patients. Um, about half were women. 60% Latino, 31% black. So a little bit of a interesting demographic mm -hmm. there. Certainly Typical doesn't for, the, for, the, for the Yeah, Bronx. for the Bronx. Yeah. Doesn't necessarily compare to us here at Hahnemann, but... True. Um, baseline characteristics were similar in all the different groups. And what they found was there was really no difference in the mean pain score decrease at two hours. Right. Um, it was like 4.3 decreased in the ibuprofen acetaminophen group. 4.4 in the Percocet group, 3.5 in the Vicodin group, 3.9 in the Tylenol 3 group. Now, and they did now, some other little tests and things. They basically said, yeah, this looks like it's good. They all look about the same. So I'm curious, going in, as you're reading the study, you're going into the study, um, 
what did uh, you think the outcome was going to be, right? So you hear the methods and you say to yourself, who's going to be the loser in that battle? Uh, you know, ibuprofen, acetaminophen, oxy, uh, acetaminophen, hydrocodone, and codeine acetaminophen. Thought codeine was going to be the loser. Yeah, me too. Right. I mean, because the uh, metabolism of codeine is such that some folks can't even, you know, metabolize it to an analgesic, uh, the uh, morphine analgesic metabolite. Uh, and um, I don't know about your yeah. experience, Ernie, but a lot of folks just tell me, you know, I give them Tylenol number three, like, ah, that doesn't work, or that's the only thing that works. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, either either love it or it doesn't do anything for exactly, you. Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, codeine, I, I, I found, just isn't really a very good pain medication. Yeah, we all agree with that. So um, no surprise that in the mean pa- pain score th- uh, side of things that codeine was on the lower side. A little surprised that hydrocodone acetaminophen didn't do as well. Uh, and honestly, uh, I'm not surprised at all that they're all about the same because I can recall some papers in the past that showed that uh, there was practically no difference between when you took a Percocet and split it into the oxy and the acetaminophen, if you just gave them the oxy, um, uh, or you just gave them, if you gave them the combined or the acetaminophen, it was just about the same. Right. Like the acetaminophen was doing all the uh, all the heavy lifting there and the pain relief. Yeah, that was one one thing that I that I thought you know w- kind of made these maybe not as valid as that there there was just a higher dose of acetaminophen given with the ibuprofen that you don't see with the right a thousand milligrams right with the hydrocodone or even the uh, uh, the Tylenol three so <laughs> it's hard to compare but I do get it you know those are you know what's available when you give a Percocet and right. give a hydrocodone yeah so, that's certainly one of the it, limitations yeah. of the study is that. You know, because how many times do you go as a really big guy? Give him two Percocets. Or, right, that looks right. really painful. Give him, right, right. give him two Percocets, not just one. And yeah. so, you know, they're compa- it might be a little unfair that they're comparing it to a small dose of um, oxycodone, right. but you know that's what that's what's out there. That's what you're going to write for people. Yeah. So, so that's the pills they're going to get. So why are we doing these studies, right? What's the what's the big impetus these days uh, for? We're, we're trying to get that opioid free, uh, right? But pain free emergency department. And do you think the pendulum has gotten a little bit wacky now, where we're giving people both Motrin and acetaminophen? Uh, we're studying that. Uh, you know, have we become so so opioid fearful that uh, you know we really need to swing the pendulum that hard? Well, there are a lot of studies out there that show that people are getting addicted to opioids, and I mean we've all seen this mm-hmm. in our practice. I mean, how many people come in and you know they can't get a hold of their doctor, their doctor right. moved, their doctor's on vacation, and right, right. they they need the prescriptions, and you know you're getting beat up on patient satisfaction scores because. You're not giving them what they want. Right. And the Joint Commission made this whole big thing about, right? They want the pain scales. The pain scale. The fifth vital sign. Was the fifth vital sign. So, yeah, I I think this is a case of the pendulum swinging too far one way and then too far the other way. Right. Hopefully, eventually, we'll settle at some reasonable place in the middle. Yeah, I, I think there there is definitely data that shows that the um, the the oxycodone and the hydrocodones are, if given in large numbers, and those I should take it back in numbers that would that would be you would not expect you know like you give a patient twenty or thirty of those when they're discharged, you're going to lead that potentially lead a percentage of those folks down into an opioid addiction. Um, I like the idea of this. So I like the idea of saying that 
reminding clinicians that ibuprofen, acetaminophen are equi-analgesic to some of these drugs. Uh, and But I would like to reserve the, um, uh, the uh, right to, pres- to use opioids as I see fit to relieve my patient's pain. And Well, that brings up another point, which is that this was done with people sitting in the ER. They got one dose of this. So you got, you know, that was great. They have a fracture. You gave them this. They got their pain under. What are you going to send them home with now? I mean, how much of this stuff can you give to somebody, yeah. right? Yeah, because if you give them a Percocet or a, a, a Vicodin, they say, oh, that worked for me, doc. Aren't you going to give me that? Right, and then what right. do you say at that point? Yeah. You know, how much Tylenol can somebody take at home before they start... Uh, well, do you ever take this approach? So I've I've done this approach for a number of years, even before the opioid crisis was really um, was really uh, at the forefront. I would give somebody maybe six oxycodones or six Percocets or six Vicodins, whatever whatever was uh, du jour, and but then I would put them on an NSAID, and I would say or extra strength Tylenol, and I would say like, look, this is your pain medicine. Acetaminophen, ibuprofen, naproxen. Typically, I typically use naproxen because it's twice a day. And then I say, like these six or eight, you know, uh, narcotics. Those are for when you're like literally about to hit nine one one because your back hurts so much, or you know, yeah. you, it's it's Friday night at two in the morning and you're just miserable. Um, and so uh, I do like this idea of multiple analgesic approach uh, and uh, using the least amount of opioid as possible. In fact, I was working last night with our residents, and a lot of them have really adopted this. They You see residents now prescribing NSAIDs and um, like a lidocaine patch, you know, and then maybe adding a little um, of, uh, you know, uh, like a uh, antispasmodic or, or a muscle relaxant, you know, uh, on top of it to really steer clear of the of the opioids. Um, you just, I, I think that that's great for the outpatient. I just worry that we're, we've got, you know, we have to be cautious that we don't, you know, go back to the old days where nobody got a shot of morphine unless they were. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I mean, um, and certainly the residents sort of mirror that now because, like, people come in and they've got these ugly-looking fractures. And, you know, they're either all be- like the guy we had last night with the subtalar dislocation. Yes. Or you've got these open mm-hmm. fractures. And you look at them and you go like, Give this guy six or eight of morphine or something. Yeah, and you know it's like I still think there's a you know when they look at it, one dose of morphine in the ER is not going to make somebody an opioid addict when yes. the bone is sticking out right, of their leg. Right, right. You know, right. It's like if that was my leg, I'd want <laughs> yeah, morphine. yeah, give really. Morphine. I mean, give me the poppy plant, please. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. granted, I don't want you to send me home on it. I don't want to be yes. addicted to it. But yes. where, when the bone is still yeah. sticking out and you haven't done, you know, and you're going to reduce it and stuff, yeah, yeah, I want the I want the the good stuff, as yeah. they say. Um, do you use, uh, Ernie, do you use IV acetaminophen at all? Um, I have not used it yet just because I, I think it, it hasn't been really yeah. very available. You know, it's here, and I know it's here, and we can get it, but it's still, you know, maybe a little bit of a call to a pharmacy or, or right. whatnot to have it sent down. Uh, and I haven't really found the, the exact right patient, I think, you know, for it. Yeah, I mean, I think I reserve it for somebody who, the rare patient who absolutely cannot take PO and absolutely cannot take a narcotic. Somebody might say, look, I'm in recovery Please do not give me a narcotic under any special circumstances, and I'm I'm trying to avoid using an NSAID, you know, like Ketorolac or whatnot. But yeah. pretty rare for me. I I, I too have uh, maybe one time where I've I've ordered that up. Yeah. I think it is though. Any anything uh, you can have in your armamentarium to not use uh, a narcotic, I think, is good. 
um, whether it be, you know, ketamine, you know, subdissociative ketamine or lidocaine, IV lidocaine for renal stones, mm-hmm, sure. um, you know, lidocaine patches. I've, I've done a couple trigger point injections oh, over nice. the past month that I haven't done in years. Yeah, you yeah, know, nice. I, I read a little something about it, and, and it worked two out of three times, so I want to keep doing it for now. Sure. So I think anything else that you have that you can use, I think, is, uh, is valid. Now, the authors uh, in their conclusion talk about that further study is needed. We always need further study, of course. But further study is needed to assess the adverse events. And one of the problems with the pendulum swinging the other way to opioid-free is the adverse events uh, effects of NSAIDs and acetaminophen. And um, I I honestly would not be comfortable writing for a patient to take both ibuprofen and acetaminophen at the same time as their analgesic uh, as their analgesic uh, prescription well there's certainly a, a problem with I mean giving a in one gram of Tylenol you can give what four grams a day four grams so, a day is kind of the ceiling so yeah. they yeah they have to take a q six hours but 400 of Motrin how much of that can you give before they start getting Stomach upset, or right in older people, the incidence of GI bleeding goes up like, you know, astronomically after about age fifty-five or sixty. So especially with a longer course, right? Yeah. So you know, I mean, do you then give Motrin, or do you give them something like a BID drug, like well, Naprosyn, my now maybe or? you do, maybe you guys do what I do, which is to say, uh, try the naproxen or you know, or the ibuprofen, and if that's not working. Then go ahead and as a relief component, you know. This add, is for breakthrough. Breakthrough pain. pain, yeah. And I think I think teaching patients to look at their pain in that way, uh, I think, is important. In other words, telling them that they're never going to, until the condition resolves completely, they're, they're not going to be in zero out of 10 pain. And that there is a level of pain which is just sort of, you know, that you just endure. Um, uh, hopefully, um, only a mild amount of pain. And that if you try the um, NSAID and it's no bueno, then you can add the acetaminophen, uh, you know, within a certain period of yeah. time. And It's something that I think takes some patient education because I think the expectation that we've set now between, you know, surveys and the Joint Commission and all this stuff is that patients expect to be pain-free. Right, it's my right. Right, the patient right. bill of rights. It's, <laughs> it is your right to be pain free and right. stuff. And right. it's like, come on, it's you know, yeah. What, yeah. What's the ancient Chinese proverb? Pain is mandatory, but suffering is optional. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're going to be in pain whether you suffer right. with it. That's you know yeah. your own psychological state. Yeah, but yeah you're gonna you're gonna be, have some pain there. Yeah, it's true. I, I I like the approach that you take, Rich. <clears throat> where I will say. All right, here's your NSAID. Uh, take it regularly, right. you know, every six hours or so. Uh, don't let, you know, try to stay on top of the pain. Don't sure. let the pain get to to its maximum before you try to take something. Then supplement it with the acetaminophen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I give them the instruction also, mm-hmm. know that you are going to have some pain. There's nothing right. that's going to make this go to a zero. And, you know, that's okay. Right. Um, I think sometimes just letting them know that you know, makes them feel a little bit better. Too. Yeah, I agree. And I and I would definitely not want to see Percocet prescriptions replaced by combined ibuprofen, acetaminophen, Q6 hour prescriptions, because I think that there's just a different slippery slope in terms of renal function and, and NSAIDs that, that, uh, and GI bleeding and all sorts of, you know, drug interactions that, um, and I think what we're trying to say is to, you know, not to just 
replace opioid overprescribing with non-opioid overprescribing is to try to get a good pain regimen for your patients. So. Yeah, it's a little bit more complex now than it used to be. It used to be you gave them Tylenol or you gave them Motrin or you gave them Percocet. Right. Now you have to use combination and you have mm-hmm. to add lidocaine and mm-hmm. other things in right. there. You have to use combination things yeah. and stuff. So it's and not- this is just musculoskeletal pain, you know. Uh, forget about neuropathy, which is what we I think we often see mostly when we have a chronic pain patient. We have right. a lot of neuropathic pain. That's a completely different approach. All right. Well, very cool. Uh, like that study, and um, I think um, we're going to be we're going to be. Uh, it's important to read that because I think there is a, a, a tremendous amount of interest in getting away from prescribing opioids and. Um, our job as educators is to provide sort of like an enlightened middle road to the whole process. <laughs> What's our next ar- next article? Uh, so the next article is entitled um, Thrombectomy, 6 to 24 hours after stroke with a mismatch between deficit and infarct. Mm. Um, published by the Dawn Investigators in the right. New England Journal just in this January 2018. So we're right on top of things here. Um This trial was conducted at 26 different centers in the U.S., Canada, Europe, and Australia, and they wanted to compare endovascular thrombectomy plus standard medical care with standard medical care alone for patients with acute stroke, and they were looking at patients who were last known well 6 to 24 hours earlier, so people who fell outside the current guidelines. Gotcha. And they also looked at people who had a mismatch between their clinical deficit and their infarcts. Now, why, why are they going for that, do you think? Well, what they're looking for, obviously, is how big the penumbra area mm-hmm. is, right? The, you're looking at how much dead brain you have, and then you've got an area around it, which is called the penumbra, which is underperfused, but is still salvageable. Salvageable, right. So they're looking for people who have a large deficit, but a small infarct size, so that they can potentially have a lot of brain they can save. Right. And the theory is, is that uh, <clears throat> for thrombectomy, these this is where thrombectomy will excel. So they did a month, multi-center prospective randomized open-label trial. Um, you know, they took people who were 18 or older, as we said, last known well time of 6 to 24 hours. They had to have occlusion of either the intracranial internal carotid or the first segment of the middle cerebral artery. So they were doing all anterior strokes, not posterior circulation strokes. Everybody had a CTA or an, or an MRA. Mm-hmm. And again, they were looking for that mismatch. And they took people who had a pre-stroke score of zero to one on the modified Rankin scale. So mm-hmm. if you had a big deficit to begin with, they didn't put you in this study. They were taking people who were basically the walking well to begin with. And, okay. then, they did, <laughs> and then they did their... Except for the stroke, walking well. <laughs> except for the stroke, yes. And then they did their, you know, you did your typical, we went in, we did our thrombectomy using this device. Right. And they looked at, they looked at two different endpoints. Um, a mean disability score on a modified Rankin scale, but they weighted it utility weighted, which basically flips the Rankin score upside down, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. we all remember the Rankin score is zero, you've got no symptoms, one is like no significant disability, two is slight disability, and it goes all the way up to six, which is, or five, which is like severe disability, and six, which is death. Well, they flipped that around and they said, 
a zero is basically a 10. You're really good. Mm -hmm. um, and a one is about a, like a nine or something like that. A two slate disability is like 7.6. And then when you get all the way down five and six, those were zeros. So mm -hmm. if you're dead or you're almost dead, is what movie is that from? Monty Python. Uh, almost. <laughs> he's almost dead. <laughs> um, dead yet. <laughs> um, you were basically a zero. So, okay. so they, that's what they were looking at. They found actually pretty good results with this. Um, they found that their primary, well, I guess I should mention some of the numbers, right? 206 patients were enrolled, right. 107 in the thrombectomy group, 99 in the control group. 206 over 26 centers, right? Yes, yeah, over 26 so, centers in 30 months. So we were, we were, we were commenting uh, before about how this is like every so often type of patient. Right. It's not a, it's not a whole lot of patients, at least right. the way this trial was set up. Right. And this mean disability score with the utility-weighted modified ranking at 90 days was 5.5 for the thrombectomy group compared with 3.4 in the control group. So there was a, a difference of two points there. And, you know, the 95% um, confidence intervals were 1.1 to 3. So it, that was a statistically mm -hmm. significant result. So yeah. it looks like it did a good job. Mm -hmm. It actually reduced it. The secondary endpoint or the, or the second primary endpoint was the rate of functional independence. And that, again, was um, you know 49% in the um, thrombectomy group compared with 13% in the control group. And, again, that was statistically significant. Right. So it looks like this is working, and we're – uh, as we were discussing earlier, we're sort of evolving with stroke care right. in a parallel fashion that we did with MI care. Sure. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we, we at our last journal club, we looked at, I think it was a TPA study, mm -hmm. didn't we look at that, which basically showed how TPA does well when the clot is of a certain size and a certain location, right? Right. And does does poorly, um, uh, you know, with, I think it was TPA was doing better with sort of mid-sized clots in, you know, not big, gigantic, proximal clots. Right. Um, which would go along with a big, big infarct or whatnot. And uh, I uh, see this really changing what we do uh, when we do stroke alerts. I mean, uh, it was only a couple of years ago the stroke alert was pretty simple. Just whisk them off to CAT scan, do an NIH stroke scale, decide if they had any, you know, um, contraindications, relative or absolute, and then it was TPA, yes or no. Um, and in my mind, that was just too simple of an approach for the for the complexity of what the vascular problem is that stroke patients have. And I think it is exciting to see how we're starting to tease out who benefits from what exactly. Um, and it's going to increase the burden of what we do in the ED. Um, I don't know about your last uh, stroke alert, Ernie, but mine involved deciding about CT, CTA vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, contrast allergy versus MRA versus renal function, ver you know what I mean? And we're, yes. we're, we're sort of like surfing through all these choices to see if we can get at, you know, uh, ischemia versus deficit mismatch stuff. Yeah, de definitely throwing a lot more decision points uh, at you that you have to make, you know, in a short amount of time when the patient's right in front of you. Uh, and then, like you said, it's adding time to different CAT scans, the CT, the CT perfusion scan. Uh, and then, you know, the, the other than the stroke scale you need, um, you know, a, a good clinical evaluation of the patient. You know, how do you know, does 
what I'm seeing clinically match this size of infarct that you're right. seeing in the perfusion scan. Yeah. And then, you know, if you have a mismatch, okay, maybe they're going to benefit from thrombectomy. So um, I think the decisions are becoming, uh, you know, more complicated and complex. Especially for our ED brethren who are not at stroke centers, who are going to make a uh, stay or ship out decision. Uh, these things are going to get, uh, I think, fairly, fairly complicated. So, um, and it, and the the way the literature is evolving in terms of endovascular treatment of stroke, it is not getting uh, simpler. <laughs> right. You know, uh, it is really getting. I mean, even the device now. One thing about this study that um, I always sort of like the right eyebrow goes boing up is uh, who sponsored it, Ed. It was sponsored by um, the company Stryker. That, by Stryker that makes the uh, device they use, the, I guess, Trevo device. Okay. Um, you know, there is the usual disclaimers in the article about how, you know, they gave us money, but they didn't really have any um, input into the, analyzing the results or writing up the, um, uh, the article and things like that. But always gives you a little bit of pause. The results were sealed in a mayonnaise jar, yes, jar on Funk and Wagnall's like, porch. <laughs> yeah, these guys gave me hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this study. And, Whatever. Who and, knows? And, 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 and I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to shade the results in their favor because I want more money from them. But, that's right. You, know, that's right. I, you always have that, yeah. that well, no, in the back of your brain. We're not putting down the Dawn trial investigators, no. but we're suggesting that there have been, in the past, episodes where sponsored trials did not repeat themselves when when they were unsponsored. And sometimes that is not for anything more, uh, they're not for a nefarious reason. It's more that sometimes you'll see that particular investigators who are enthusiastic about interventions are good at them. Right. And the when the intervention becomes more widely uh, impl- uh, uh, implemented, uh, the results start to... Well, dis- sure, because the indications get loosened up. You start including people maybe you didn't do, and right. it's almost like a Hawthorne effect of you're right. paying right. attention to it. And so these guys are, this is what they do for a right. living. You're right. right. And so they're, whereas the, the guy out in the community hospital is like, does it once in a while is... Not yeah. going to be as invested. Yeah. Well, these are probably not going to be community hospital patients, I, and I think we're going to find that shipping patients to stroke centers more and more is going to become um, the um, the the future. Yeah. If you work in a community hospital, I, I can remember working in a community hospital back in the MI days, where you know we would frequently have heli- You know, we had a system set up with a mm-hmm. cardiac center and yeah. had a helicopter on call. You could just get on the phone and say, I got one. I'm sending it to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you, you and know. Then just, and they would, uh, it, you know, everything was like sort of off the page. Like, like give them a little squirt of TPA before they get in the helicopter. You're like, right. what? <laughs> right. what is that doing? Is softening things up? I don't understand. Yeah. yeah oh, we're just, we're just seeing how it goes. We're like, oh, okay. All right. Great. Right. <laughs> give them a little TPA, put them in the helicopter and you <laughs> beam them off someplace else. The other things that were funny about this was that it, it was stopped early also, right? They had this adaptive trial design, right. so stopped right. it at 31 months. I guess they just felt like the improvements they were seeing were so great that it didn't make sense to keep one going. That's a common study design right. in a lot of these things is they have interim data points that they analyze things, and they do it both for safety. So if you're all, all of a sudden you yes. find you're killing a lot of people, right. they go, oh, we're going to stop this study. Right. Or if they find out, hey, we're doing a really, really good job at this, they'll stop this study. Right. There is some controversy about whether that 
is good or not, because if you just continue the study, you might find that, as you said, people repeat studies later, yeah. and they find they're not as good because they actually evaluated the whole cohort rather than just a piece of it. And right. maybe this is a statistical anomaly right here. Well, if you, if you not to go too far afield, but if you look at what's going on with vitamin C and sepsis, is it possible that the study that seemed to show vitamin C was so great in sepsis was a, um, a very uh, particular uh, outcome based on early positive results, almost flip, like flipping heads 100 times in a row, right. and then you stopped and you said, this coin is only made of heads. Uh, right. If you had flipped it 100 more times, it would have been all tails. Right. <laughs> and so that's, that's the... Now, in theory, the statistics control for that based on how they set up the, the methods, but... Um, but again, I mean, there can be, you know, it, the statistics are not 100%. So there's always a little like doubt. That. I think you should put that You should put that on your office somewhere. I'm going to have a tattooed yeah. on my arm. <laughs> statistics are not 100%. <laughs> I mean, you know, you know, even when they say that, that the p-value is, you know, 0.999, you know, there's there's a little one at the end of that yeah. someplace. That, uh, Could you say 100% of the time statistics are not 100%? I like that, Ernie. I like that. <laughs> Thrombectomy works most of the the time, a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna have our work cut out for us sorting out who needs what in the in the ED and and um, the um, ever shifting, uh, you know, sort of like uh, desires of the inter neuro interventionists as they sort of explore where where and what everybody needs. So, going to be a bit of a challenge. One more quick thing about oh, sure. this, right? How do they name this Dawn, right? Did you see the the acronym for this? Do they come up? I think they come up with the name Dawn first, right? It's, you know, this is going to be the dawn of a new age in stroke care, and then kind of fit in the words to, to make it sound good. Just, it does seem that way yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yes. I don't know. There should be there should be an too. app where you can just go like, hey, I got a study. It's about this and that, and they just flip out little potential right. acronyms, and then yeah. you can work backwards. Uh, it's like, backwards like naming a band, right? <laughs> I think naming a band more has to do with drugs and black lights and okay. dark rooms and then, but maybe not. I know. Just, All right. <laughs> so the last article we're going to do is um, entitled "Prevalence of Pulmonary Embolism in Patients with Syncope," and. I basically wanted to do this article because what I, I like to call it taking the PE out of syncope. Out of syncope. There you go. Which is good because otherwise it always drives me crazy when people spell syncope with a Y instead of an E. But that's a whole other story. Syncope. Yes. So we all remember, or maybe not, that there was this Italian trial. It was called the PESIT study. I yes. don't know where they got that name, Ernie. Right. I don't know what, where that comes from. Uh, but yeah, it doesn't make me think of anything good. So <laughs> maybe it's Italiano, PESIT. I don't know what that means. I don't know. <laughs> but it was done in 2016, and they found that PE was very common in syncope in hospitalized patients. It was like 17% of their hospitalized patients. So one out of every six patients had a PE. And we all looked at each other at that time and went, what? Am, my, I, missing, yeah. am I missing this many PEs? Right. Do I need to start doing right. more pulmonary angiograms and sending more D-dimers? And so this study was, um, again, just published. It was in JAMA Internal Medicine in January of 2018. And it actually comes out of Italy again, Constantino et al. In Milan. In Milan. And they, their objective was to determine the prevalence of PE in patients with syncope using several international administrative databases. Mm. So this was a retrospective observational trial. They used four longitudinal administrative databases from Canada, 
Denmark, Italy, and then two from the United States. Okay. So really wide, you know, um, wide area. Mm-hmm. They collected data over like a 16-year period. They basically, inclusion criteria, all adult patients, 18 years or old, who presented to the ED for syncope. Mm. And they wanted to look at what was the prevalence of syncope in the ER and at hospital discharge. So they, um, the database had 1.6, almost 1.7 million adult patients in it. A small city of syncope patients. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. 1.7, <laughs> that might even be a large city. <laughs> a I, large city of patients constantly passing out. <laughs> yes, constantly, constantly <laughs> passing out. Right. And they basically found that the rate of PE diagnosis ranged from 0.06% to 0.5% in the patients who presented to the ER for syncope in the various databases. And if they just looked at the hospitalized patients, it ranged from like 0.15% to about 2.1%. Mm-hmm. So certainly nowhere near the 17% right. that um, the prior study found. You know, at most, there was 2% of the patients were paid. Um, you know, so one out of 50 versus one out of every six. One out of every six. And what was their definition of a PE, Ed? What, what, how, you know? Um, they, their, their, their original study looked at diagnose, actually diagnosing a PE. Somebody wrote on the chart, you have a PE. You have a PE. They also did a sensitivity analysis just to see, well, maybe we missed some. So they went back and looked at anybody who had a PE within 90 days of follow-up, figuring maybe they missed it the first okay, time. Okay, sure. And so you got a PE now. Maybe you actually had a PE then and we missed it. Or they looked at people who had any kind of venothromboembolism within the next 90 days. So maybe you just had a DVT and, okay, maybe you had a PE and we missed it then. And, again, the numbers changed a little bit. But, basically, they were still nowhere near as bad as that prior study. Right. So yeah. our, our sense of what we've been doing all along has been restored to me, at least. I feel that I don't, I don't feel bad like that I'm missing people with PEs that I'm sending home with syncope now all the time. Because mm. that other study sort of made you a little bit nervous. Yeah, it made you a little D-dimer happy, right? Yeah. I, <laughs> Or it was every time you wanted to admit a syncope patient and the, uh, you know, internist would say, you need to scan this patient because right. 17% of them have PEs. Right. You know, now we can go back and say, well, hold on a second. Yeah. Maybe it, it's it's not that high. Right? Yeah. It's and I can't remember, literally cannot remember the last time when I diagnosed a PE, it was a patient that had syncope. Now, I will say this. I've had more patients who have had cardiac arrest uh, related to uh, syncope, so uh, than I do with, uh, or I've had cardiac arrest related to PE. I apologize. Uh, than syncope related to PE, so there may be some little continuum in there, but um, it's pretty hard to argue with 1.7 million patients. Uh, yeah, and that, yeah. and that and that prevalence. So it just it, it makes you feel that, yes, what you've been doing all along is not wrong, because I, I felt like... when That's, that's so funny, rare, these now, nowadays. Yes, they feel like, oh, was I missing all these PEs? Was I just being a bad doctor? Yeah. No, you were okay. Right. So I guess the only uh, thing that I worry about is that, that, and I do appreciate the 90-day follow-up in case it was missed, but then how would you know? In other words, if you didn't diagnose it on the first visit, may not be likely to diagnose it. So it is the diagnosis of PE. You could you could push back and say, well, they're still not diagnosing PE as often as they found it. But I think the difference between that study and this study is so great to suggest that the original study, uh, one of them is 
right and one of them is wrong. Right. <laughs> and right. and, and that other study only had like 400 patients or something, right. maybe 500. And this has got, as you said, one point, almost 1.7 million patients. It's right. uh, yeah. And there, there's been a couple of these studies now that to answer that PESIT trial right. that, that is more in line with the numbers in this study, mm. that it is not as prevalent as, uh, as the, the PESIT folks claim. And, and, you know, there's been also been, you know, multiple people have talked about all the problems with the PESIT. So right. um, I, I think we can put that to rest a little bit. The yeah. prevalence is not that high. Not one in 10, uh, for sure. <laughs> well below that, a tenth of that perhaps uh, at best. Well, that's uh, those are the articles for uh, this journal club. Uh, I think it's a nice wide range of uh, of things. Uh, we learned that we can maybe um, uh, you know relax a little bit when we're dealing with syncope and not worry about PE so much, and and we'll spend more of that time trying to figure out what the heck is going on with the particular stroke patient that we have. And educating our patients about pain management and, pain and, management and, and all the different drugs they should be uh, taking yes. instead of just popping Percocets every That's four right. hours. <laughs> right. Take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Just yeah, right. The menu is expanding for yes. pain management. Yes, the menu is definitely expanding. And, and um, I think the lesson learned for sure in the last, I would say, about a year or so is that you know, it takes two seconds to write a prescription that'll lead to an opioid addiction, but it takes about a good 10, 15 minutes to sit there and explain a pain regimen to a patient, and we're going to have to just buckle down and, uh, and, and, do, and that. do that. Yeah. Well, thanks, guys. It's great. Look forward to doing it again. And until next time, uh, bye for now. All right. Bye. See ya.